the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we're going to talk with Detroit City Clerk candidate Denzel McCampbell about his challenge to current Clerk Janice Winfrey and how differently he might approach the job. Then we're going to talk about black television, how far it has come since the 1950s and 60s, and how far it still may have to go with the author of a new article in The Atlantic about the subject. That's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. We are less than a month away from the November elections this year. This is an off year for members of Congress, for the state legislature, and for all of our statewide positions, but there are still really important races on your ballot, lots of local decisions to be made. Here in Detroit, we're going to decide whether Mayor Mike Duggan gets a third term, we'll elect a new city council, and we'll decide whether or not to adopt a number of ballot proposals. My next guest is running for one of the most important positions in Detroit government, city clerk. Now, the clerk, among other things, is the guardian of safe and properly executed elections here in the city. And I don't think it's an understatement to say that that's an area where we need some real improvement, where things often go awry on election day and people's access to the ballot often is at stake when those things go wrong. Denzel McCampbell is a voting rights activist who has served as communications director for Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and as a member of the Detroit City Charter Revision Commission. He hopes to deny incumbent Janice Winfrey another term, saying that the current clerk hasn't met some of the most basic requirements as the city's top elections and record-keeping official. Denzel McCampbell, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Stephen. So let's start here. Uh, We talked with you during the primary about uh, your hope to get into the general election to challenge Janice Winfrey. Now you're here. Uh, What's different about uh, the campaign at this point? What what should we know now that perhaps we didn't know when uh, you were just trying to clear that primary field uh, to be the one to challenge uh, the current clerk? Absolutely. So what's different now, I would say, is, you know, we were going into the primary election hoping that many of the issues that we saw with the election administration in the the city of Detroit would change. And and unfortunately, we continue to see similar problems crop up. One, um, as you know, we still have folks not get their absentee ballot on time or got them late. You know, information about the election came in, you know, a week before the election happened, but five weeks after absentee ballots went out, you know, we had polling locations still opening up late and we had wrong times posted at some of the locations. So, 
you know, as we're into the general, it's, it's very unfortunate that we're continuing to see these issues. But for our campaign personally and, and uh, what we've seen, we've seen a lot of energy of folks wanting change. You know, in the in the time that time period, we have seen, you know, more of our city council members in the headlines and folks really demanding for more transparency that to can turn into accountability. And what I've been telling folks is that the city clerk, the clerk of the council could provide that more transparency. You know, just recently in the Detroit Free Press, uh, folks with the Detroit documenters uh, talked about how they're still facing problems, even getting minutes and voting records of uh, members of the city council so that they could post their information online. So what has changed is that, you know, we're in a position that these problems still are occurring and we need a new city clerk and we are having more energy around that. And, and I hope that folks will on November 2nd, take that into account and, and elect me as their next Detroit city clerk. And in fact, you say that to fix the broken relationship between the city and abandoned voters, you want to organize a door-to-door engagement effort. Uh, first of all, what do you think those voters need to hear to get them engaged again in the process? What would you say to voters on this kind of door-to-door engagement? Absolutely. You know, what I think what actually needs to happen on that, that door-to-door engagement is that we need to hear from voters, right? What I tell folks is that the first question we need to ask voters is, what issues are important to you? How are they impacting your daily life? So for example, if we, we come across a young family and they're saying, we need more recreation options in our neighborhood, we can take that information and say, you know what, you're exactly right. Let's, let's connect you to your city council person or the mayor who has control over the parks and recs depa- uh, budget. Or here's the parks and recs department number if you need new equipment in your park so you can actually engage them and be active in our city government. And what we know and what I know from my work in community organizing and doing voting rights advocacy is when we actually talk to folks about what issues are important to them, they're going to feel more empowered to be a part of city government. So it's not us actually talking at them. It's having a conversation with representatives of your government and working together and really a co-governance model and to increase civic engagement. I know in that effort, I plan to touch every registered voter in a four-year term and to have that conversation, I know turnout will increase. And also, you know, after the fact, after they go to the ballot box, we'll have a more engaged electorate. Hmm. So I know that uh, you have done a lot of things uh, in, in the time that you've been working and, and, and as an activist here in Detroit. But uh, Janice Winfrey has a lot of years of experience being the clerk. She has a lot of years of experience running that office. And there are lots of people who have very strong criticisms of some of the things that she's done. But there's no question that she is in charge and has had the time to figure out the many different parts of that work and to master a good deal of it. You've never had a chance to do any of that kind of work. So I wonder if you can make the case to our listeners why you would be able on day one, for instance, to manage the work of the clerk's office and to manage it better than Janice Winfrey, who has been doing it for so long. Absolutely. And, you know, Stephen, I don't want to take away 
the years that the current incumbent has had in this office. But I also would encourage folks to look back on the track record and that will give insight into why a change is needed in the office. And to talk about my experience, what I'll tell you is that from the start of my work in voting rights and election protection, I was one of the folks who helped recruit folks, both legal and non-legal uh, folks to go to polling locations when there were problems to make sure that folks, if they were eligible, that voters actually had a chance to vote a regular ballot. If there was issues that came up, I was one of the folks who trained volunteers to go out to handle that on election day. And afterwards, when we get those, that information back, I would meet with clerks across the state to say, okay, you know, you've had a lot of long lines. Let's work together to reconfigure polling locations. A lot of reports on you requiring people to show their ID when that's actually not the case in Michigan, you can sign an affidavit. Let's revamp your uh, election, your poll worker training. Also, you know, in Congresswoman Tlaib's office, I advised on voting rights legislation. I was part of the early planning group around the promote the vote effort to increase access to the ballot box. And just recently in 2020, the fall of 2020, I helped, I managed a $30 million program across eight states teaching people how to vote safely in a pandemic and also pushing back against disinformation in elections. So with that, I know election law. I know the policies and the processes in the state of Michigan when it comes to voting and election administration. And what I'll tell you is that what we have right now as we're looking at, you know, their ballot proposals on a ballot that folks don't know about, you know, I get calls every day. Their folk, their positions on the ballot that folks are still wondering what they do. So while the current clerks may have years in that office, what I'm putting forth to folks and why I'm running is that there's time for a change. And what I'll do, I'll ensure that we're working together with stakeholders in the community, with voting rights experts, with election administration experts to make sure on day one, we're ready to go and we're going to improve the processes across the city of Detroit. I'm going to be ready on day one because of my experience, but also I'm going to bring folks around me who also know this, who are experts in their area to make sure we're doing what's right in the city of Detroit. Hmm. I'm talking with Denzel McCampbell. He is a candidate for candidate for Detroit city clerk in the November elections. Uh, right now, he uh, is a communications uh, specialist for Congresswoman uh, Rashida Tlaib. We're talking about his candidacy for Detroit city clerk. We're also talking about the work that has been done by Janice Winfrey, who is the current clerk of the city of Detroit. We'd love to hear from you during this conversation as well. What questions do you have for Detroit city clerk candidate Denzel McCampbell? What do you think of the ways that the clerk's office has operated in Detroit in recent years? What improvements would you like to see? And what do you think are the biggest threats to our elections and to voter engagement in the city or anywhere else in Michigan. This is an issue that, of course, came to a really ugly head during the 2020 elections when Detroit and Detroit officials were accused of permitting all kinds of cheating during the presidential election. Of course, there were no solid allegations of that. There was no evidence put forward ever that that happened. But I think it's fair to say that we don't have the smoothest or most effective elections process in the city of Detroit. There are lots of things that don't work. There are lots of things that don't work as well as they could. And there are lots of instances in which the access to the ballot that all of us have a right to uh, just falls short. Uh, so give us a call and let us know what you think of the clerk's race 
of the job that the current clerk is doing and what you might have to ask someone like Denzel McCampbell, who says he can do it all better. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, um, and we'll work you into the conversation that way. Before we get to the listeners, Denzel, I want to talk just a little about the funding for the clerk's office. This is one of the issues that the current clerk points to frequently when she talks about the shortcomings that exist. That's not something that's in her control, and yet she's always going to be held accountable, and you would, if you were to to succeed her, you would be held accountable for the performance in that office. Talk about the current funding, whether you think it's sufficient And if not, how you might get more funding, how you might find more money to make sure that uh, especially the elections process runs a little smoother. Absolutely. You know, I I do not think that the current clerk or the Department of Elections has sufficient funding. What I'll tell you is that... What has traditionally happened is that we always hear after the fact. When there, when there are problems that are coming up, we always hear after an action has been done. It's like, oh, I don't have the funding for it, right? You know, half the ballot boxes were taken up during the primary, and then the clerk pointed to, oh, well, it was a funding matter. Well, if we have had, we could have had that communication um, outwardly. We could have had folks in the community, organizations, you know, uh, uh, nonprofits and folks help to fund drop boxes because we're still in the midst of a pandemic. So as we're moving folks more towards absentee voting, that could have been something that we do not deprive folks of a drop box. You know, I had a story, I had folks call me and say, I drove up to a drop box that I had in 2020 and I saw, I saw five cars behind me do the same thing and the drop box wasn't there. So did those folks actually go to another location or did they not vote at all? So what I'm putting forth is that in the funding I will be a city clerk who appeals to the city council and the mayor's administration because they have to have a part in elections and civic engagement. If you're going to run, if you're going to be a public official, if you're going to be an elected official, if you're going to be someone who is a public servant, you should be dedicated to elections and civic engagement as well. And I'm going to use my platform to make that known and to make sure that residents are demanding that of our city council. But also what I'll say, Stephen, is that we have to build up relationships with nonprofits. We have to build up relationships with folks who are dedicated to election protection and uh voting rights to also have those funds come in, to also have that support as well. And, you know, as you talked about the attacks on voting rights, you know, what we have in Lansing right now is an initiative that's going around that will prohibit that type of funding. So we also need a city clerk who will use their platform to say, no, these things, these are things that work. These are partnerships that we should have in our Detroit City Clerk's office to increase funding, to increase the resources that we have, to make sure that we are engaging every voter in the city of Detroit. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here. On the phones, you can also go to the Facebook page here at WDET, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag us, and we'll try to include you in the conversation that way. Let's start with Michelle in Detroit. Michelle, what's on your mind? Hi there. Hi. Um, I am a Detroit voter, and I think my biggest concern is that uh, with Detroit being the biggest, one of the biggest voting districts in the state, um, basically how Detroit votes can influence 
particularly presidential elections. So it's just extremely critical that the voting process runs smoothly in Detroit. Mm-hmm. We've seen issues uh, time after time with that, with the current um, city clerk. Um, and I am completely sold on Mr. McCampbell's argument that we need better voter education in advance. I consider myself a very educated voter and have had major challenges getting information on, uh, for instance, ballot proposals. Mm. Mm. Uh, Michelle, I appreciate the call and your perspective on this. Denzel, talk about how you would change the things that Michelle is experiencing in particular and what is going wrong now that people are experiencing that that you could fix. Michelle is absolutely right. And again, as she brought up the ballot proposals, as I said, Stephen, I get multiple calls a day about those now. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a we've seen this election connection newsletter that goes out. And as I mentioned, you know, in the primary went out a week before the election. And, you know, the current clerk pointed to paper shortages. But you you had candidates across the board sending out mail. So I don't know where that shortage was. But we also need to go further than just sending out the newsletter in the mail. We have to be partnered with media organizations, running PSAs about what's on the ballot, uh, doing inexpensive digital ads on social media. We have to meet folks where they are, and we have to be doing things such as radio ads and PSAs to get that information out. Having a accurate and updated website, you know, that's not actually happening right now uh, with the Detroit City Clerk's Office. So what I'm putting forth is bringing the City Clerk's Office into the 21st century, using all the tools at our disposal, using relationships that already exist, block clubs, neighborhood associations, the various civic engagement organizations across the city of Detroit, and having education early on before even anyone gets their ballot and having repetition so folks can remember, oh, I know what a police police commissioner does. I know what this ballot proposal means. I know all of this education off election year and election year so that we have a more engaged and educated electorate. So folks aren't, when they get in their ballot, I've gotten calls from folks to say, I don't even know if I should send my ballot in because I don't know about these proposals. And that absolutely breaks my heart because this is, it, it turns into a disenfranchisement. We have to have a wide range of information coming out of our city government so folks can feel empowered to make a decision and to have their voices heard. Mm. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Byron on Twitter says, I used to cover charter commission meetings for Detroit Documenters and was impressed with Mr. McCampbell's passion and professionalism. I'm going to vote for him and also urge others to do the same. He says the Duggan Gilbert machine is hard to beat. They mail out glossy mailings full of lies. Uh, (laughs) I'm not not sure they are involved in this particular race, but that's an interesting data point. Uh, as well. Uh, let's go to Keisha in Detroit. Keisha, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me, Steve. Uh-huh. Um, so, Denzel, I would like to know how you would, as city clerk, increase transparency in city government uh, with all the FBI raids and ongoing corruption that's being exposed in City Hall. I would like to know how you, as the clerk of the council, as, as you say, would um, make sure that we have the utmost transparency in our government. Great question, Keisha. Thanks very much for the call. Denzel, go ahead and answer. Thank you, Keisha. 
you know, as the clerk of the council, as I mentioned, right now, you know, as, as you mentioned, Keisha, the FBI raise, and even just the, you know, the city council is deciding on very important matters, not only uh, ordinances, but where our tax dollars are going, you know, developments and such. But if you wanted to see, if you were, if your council member right now is asking for your vote in re-election, you say, okay, I want to go back and see how you voted on matters. You can't do that right now online. You know, you have to call down to the clerk's office. You have to wait for them to send you that information. I hope that you get it. And that is document. I'm just not saying it. Other folks have brought that forth in the editorial piece that I mentioned. So what I'll do is make sure that, first and foremost, that the minutes are online for you to access for a city council meeting, that the voting the voting uh, uh, records and agendas on the, how they vote on agenda items are online, that we're actually having that you have that at one click. But also, if you don't have access to the internet, we're going to make sure that you're getting that immediately, right? And we're going to also, you know, I watched a city council meeting in Los Angeles, and you could see in real time online how a council member was voting on agenda items. So I will work with the administration to ensure that we have the IT capabilities to do that on our city council meetings. You know, Transparency increases accountability. And when you have increased transparency and accountability, it helps to root out the corruption. And what I'm telling folks is that Detroiters, myself, I am tired of seeing our elected officials in the headlines for wrongdoing. I'm tired of seeing our officials in the courtroom for wrongdoing. And as a city clerk, I'm going to be dedicated to transparency in what I can do, not only with this clerk of the council, but ensuring that our records are digitized and make sure that they have, that residents have access to that online as well. Okay, Denzel McCampbell, candidate for Detroit City Clerk. It was really great to have you here on Detroit Today and to talk about your campaign. Good luck in the rest of the time before the elections. And uh, let's hope that Election Day goes pretty smoothly here in the city of Detroit. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Before we take a quick break, I want to talk just a little about the current clerk of the city of Detroit, Janice Winfrey, and not necessarily her performance as clerk, but the fact that she has not come out onto this program or onto many others or agreed to a debate with Denzel McCampbell to talk about the performance that she has done over many years and why she should be retained as clerk. It's not just an unfortunate gap in the campaign. It's a disrespectful action to be taking against Detroiters. People here deserve to hear from their public officials, the elected folks who run government in this city, about what they do. And in advance of elections, when we're making decisions about our future and theirs, that that kind of appearance is doubly important. We have reached out many times to Janice Winfrey to have her come on to Detroit Today to talk about her performance, to talk about why she thinks she should still be the clerk of the city of Detroit. And she has said a flat no. I don't think that's acceptable. I don't think Detroiters should find that acceptable. And I think it is way past time that we address this in a way that might take some of the agency away from elected officials in making the decision about how they're held accountable in this way. Lots of different ideas, lots of different possibilities for doing that. This is not really the time to do it because we're very close to an election. But I think we all ought to make a pledge together 
to make sure that this kind of thing doesn't go on in the future. You've got Janice Winfrey refusing to talk to just about anybody about her candidacy. You have Mayor Mike Duggan refusing to uh, go to a debate with Anthony Adams, his challenger. This is not the way to run a democracy. This is not a way to respect citizens and voters. We can do better and we should. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to change the subject here. We're going to talk about the, quote, unwritten rules of black TV with the Atlantic staff writer, Hannah Georges. She has written a piece as part of the Atlantic's Inheritance Project titled, Not Enough Has Changed Since Sanford and Son. Really provocative title. We'll hear from her what she means when we come back. Stay tuned for more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've tuned in. Television shows that explore the black American experience have been around for many, many decades in this country. But for a really long time, they were mostly written and constructed by white screenwriters and intended for mostly white audiences. In the 90s and in more recent years, that has changed a bit. Now, shows with an all or mostly black class cast are often constructed by black writers and producers, and they're aired on streaming platforms like Amazon, Netflix, and Hulu. This has produced really amazing shows like Atlanta and Insecure, which are two of my favorites. But there's still a deep question as to whether more inclusive changes in the television industry for black and non-white writers and producers will remain, or whether black writers and producers will be sidelined to writing singular, uncomplicated characters. This is a story and a narrative that has unfolded over a really long time, not just in Hollywood, but in many places in the arts. There's a real question about whether you can be unequivocally, unapologetically black in Hollywood or in many other art spaces and still enjoy the kind of opportunity and access that would get your work the kind of recognition and exposure it is supposed to have. That's where we want to continue the conversation here on Detroit Today. And Atlanta Atlantic writer Hannah Georges recently wrote a piece exploring these tensions in the article titled Not Enough Has Changed Since Samford and Son. Hannah Georges joins us now to talk about it. Welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. So talk a little bit about the history of black TV shows through the 60s and 70s. What were they trying to do and who was the main audience? And talk about Sanford and Son in particular and the role that that show played. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think a lot about a quote from Hal Cantor, who is the creator of Julia, the sitcom that premiered in 1968 and followed, you know, the, the titular character played by Diane Carroll, who was a nurse. Um, a widow, a, a war widow, who was just raising her son and kind of figuring her way through through life, but a very middle class character. Um, and Hal Cantor, who who's a creator of the show and who's white, said he wanted entertainment, not agony. And there's something really interesting about that framing that I, I thought a lot about as I was working on this. Um, but it wasn't until you know year, year, a few years later that we got Sanford and Son um, from from Norman Lear, who you know by then had done All in the Family, who had sort of established um, a reputation, a credibility as a person who creates shows, and in particular sitcoms, in particular um, these shows that bring people together and sort of make them laugh, even if uncomfortably, um, but, but sitcoms that really explore social issues. So it wasn't, um, it was both remarkable and also, um, you know, it felt right that Norman Lear was, was the one who brought us Archie Bunker and also, uh, you know, the, the Sanfords, mm-hmm. <laughs> who were sort of persnickety, uh, crotchety in their own ways, but were, of course, um, you know, black men living, uh, sort of working together, uh, father and son, running this, like, junkyard business. Um, but this very, again, like, working class, sort of salt of the earth uh, vibe, which felt true to, to, true to some of the other stuff that Norman Lear had done. Hmm. And what's the, the problem? I think we should talk a little with <laughs> the way in which that happened. I mean, I, I think there are kind of separate tracks to, to analyze TV from that time. One is the content itself, what those shows right. were saying about the black American experience. But there's another track of analysis that looks at who was in control of that depiction and that narrative. Uh, can, can you kind of separate those two and, and, and talk about them separate in, in, in each instance? Sure, sure. I mean, the, the tough thing is that they're incredibly connected, you know, mm-hmm. um, who it is who's in a writer's room or in sort of the, the halls of power directly affects what we see on screen, right? Um, and so, you know, there, for with Sanford and Son, for example, there were, you know, <laughs> Fred Sanford was, a, again, like a sort of cantankerous man um, and, you know, was similar to Archie Bunker in that he frequently deployed all sorts of slurs and sort of referred, um, you know, had this sort of very crass way of speaking that sometimes feels, in retrospect, watching the series now at least, as though there are some equivalences being made between, you know, his potential prejudice towards, say, white people. Um and like systemic racism and we know that those things are not structurally the same thing but that's that's some of the stuff that you get when um when a a writer's room doesn't necessarily look like the cast that it's trying to represent um and there's there's all sorts of like imperfect comparisons there in part because we're talking about you know the early 70s right um and just the general sort of national dialogue around race wasn't was wasn't as um, nuanced as, as it might be now, for example. Um, but that that show and and many others for quite quite some time had very very little creative input and creative direction from black people, black writers, black producers. Um, there were certainly ways that um, Red Fox, the the comic who played Fred Sanford, you know, sort of inflected his own style, his own comedic voice mm-hmm. into it into the character. Um, and that was a big part of it. But that's 
that's, you know, sort of functionally different than being in a writer's room and being there sort of crafting narrative beats. Um, and that that's, again, the sort of attention that's a related thing, but that shows up pretty consistently throughout mm-hmm. this, this history. And it doesn't just happen in the 1970s and oh, no. 80s. It, it, it casts forward. And in fact, you give an of example course. in your piece of the predominantly black show Family Matters, which yeah. is a 90s show. Uh, right. where the family's son, Eddie, is upset about a run-in he has with the police. But his father, Carl, is, of course, a black police officer, and he actually defends the police, at least right. at first. So I, I'm really wondering if you can talk about what was happening in the writer's room at the time of yeah. that scene's creation and how that was a representation of white TV writers trying to handle black television. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I remember watching, excuse me, watching Family Matters growing up and sort of all of this stuff, all of those tensions completely evaded me. And so to go back and be watching this, um, you know, working on this story and speaking with Felicia D. Henderson, who is the writer who was in the room at the time, um, whose experience I sort of recount um, and relay in the, in the early part of the story was just fascinating and it was an incredible learning experience for me not just as you know not just as a reporter as a critic as a writer but also as a person who grew up on a lot of these shows and really loved them mm-hmm. um but the, the thing that she said when we talked about um this episode which was called good cop bad cop um it was a 1984 episode is that you know Eddie comes home, he's visibly upset. He's saying, like, I was essentially thrown to the ground. Um, And he recounts an experience that for many black people in the country is unfortunately extremely familiar. It's one that either you have maybe had yourself or you, a friend has, a brother, a cousin, you know, something. Um, But it's not sort of out of, it's certainly not a, like, a fantastical experience that he describes, right? But Carl really struggles with the idea that, that could be possible, right? He says that's unusual procedure unless you provoked it. Um, and that, that was a phrase, or that line um, sort of provoked a lot of tension in, in the writer's room, as Felicia explained it, you know. She said that she the line felt wrong to her, and she was a junior writer at the time, but she spoke up and said, you know, well, no father would tell his black son that. No black father would tell his black son that. Um, and as she remembers it, the room got silent. She said you could hear a pin drop um, and the white showrunner defended the line and the others in the room essentially responded to Felicia as though she had called them racist and sort of, you know, attacked their moral character instead of suggesting an alternate direction for this line of dialogue that was Mm. sort of more steeped in her experience and more steeped in the experiences of the people she knows. Mm. Um, And I think that that that's an interesting tension, right? Like, writers' rooms, and in general, creative, collaborative spaces um, can be thorny because, of course, people are sensitive about their work. People are sensitive about their art. I certainly I certainly <laughs> could be about my own writing. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I think that there's something in that, um, in that inclination to take somebody saying, hey, this doesn't quite sound right to me as as a person who has an experience like this or who knows this really well to take that as a more personal attack rather than, you know, that person speaking from a place of authority and experience about what the, what shape the story could take. Uh, is really interesting. Yeah. I'm talking with Hannah Georges, a staff writer at the Atlantic where she covers culture. She has a new piece in the Atlantic's inheritance project titled not enough has changed since Samford and son. We're talking about television, 
the depiction of the black American experience on television in particular, where it started in our country and how it has developed over time. We're in a really different place today with so-called black television than we were in the 1960s or the 1970s. The question is whether we are in a sufficiently uh, different space than then. Are we in a space where black screenwriters and producers have the agency they should to be able to tell black American stories on a medium like television? Or are we still in a place where they are limited by discrimination uh, and bias? We want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Colin, tell us what kind of television shows uh, you enjoy? How many of them include a predominantly black cast? What is it about these shows, if you're watching them, that you enjoy? And how much do you think about who's creating the shows that we see on television that depict African Americans? Uh, do you care whether it's white writers who are creating that art or whether African Americans get to do that? Uh, in large number. Do you think it matters in terms of the content of these shows, who's writing and who's producing? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation uh, that way. Uh, so, Hannah, I want to sort of pull the lens forward again to more modern television and uh, talk about some of the some of the things that we see now, some of the data points that we have to suggest that things are at least somewhat different. So Shonda Rhimes, for instance, has become a really important person in television. Absolutely. Grey's Anatomy is one of the longest running shows ever. Uh, and she seems to have created a cast and writer's room that is indeed uh, multiracial. Uh, in your reporting, what have you found that she's done that's so groundbreaking and why does it matter so much? Yeah, you know, I, I love the way that Shonda historic, you know, for a long time now has spoken about her um, cast and the way, the kinds of people whose stories she she's, uh, values telling. And she sort of bristles at, um, bristles at the word diversity in particular and often talks more about just depicting the world as she sees it um, in a way that, that reminds us that, you know, like there's something, despite what television has looked like um, sort of throughout its history and what a lot of our entertainment in this country has looked like throughout its history, there's something um, almost, there should be something unremarkable about turning on your TV and seeing a wealth of television shows that feel and look like the country as it is. Um, and I think that there's something really like poetic <laughs> about the way that she she relays that because it sort of um, it it peels back some of the jargon that sometimes a lot of us who work in this space or think a lot about this stuff can use when it comes to when it comes to describing art that is really just about you know making telling stories that resonate with people, telling stories that challenge them, telling stories that are fun and sometimes difficult um, and that doing that in a way that includes people's experiences, again, from around 
the country should be just what we're striving for in general. Um, and I just, I really love the sort of nonplussed way that she sometimes talks <laughs> about it, but especially, you know, you know, juxtaposed with the fact that again, she is this sort of hugely important figure in the television industry, right? The idea that there's this, the Shonda effect, meaning the sense that she, you know, started putting out Grey's Anatomy scandal, how to get away with murder, these casts led by, or these shows led by really multiracial, multi-ethnic casts. Um, in the case of Scandal, the first um, primetime series, I believe, led by a black woman character since Julia, mm. which, like I said, premiered in 1968. Mm-hmm. Scandal, you know, um, what, four decades later, right? Um, so it, I think the the juxtaposition between how how big of a deal it has been um, in the industry for those works to be not just successful, but hugely successful, right? Um, and the way that she talks about this mandate as being just how she sees the world um, has always been really interesting to me. Yeah, yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter for comments there, and uh, we'll work into the conversation. Let's start with uh, Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, welcome to the show. Good morning, Stephen. What I wanted to say in terms of black representation is in commercials that when you see black people dancing into a McDonald's or <laughs> buying furniture or waiting <laughs> and twirling around the room, that's not all of us on the trip. The other thing I'd like to say is that um, I vote for Mike Coulter, who was Luke Cage yeah. and Bishop uh-huh. mm-hmm. as the next James Bond. Huh. Oh. <laughs> Bernadette, that's that? a Wait, really that's a interesting idea. <laughs> Bernadette, as always, thanks for the call. You've always got such uh, provocative things to say. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I, quickly before we have to break, uh, Hannah, uh, respond to what Bernadette's saying, especially about commercials. And, and I think yes. that's a different yes. world, really, than than the you know the, the television shows that, that get produced. But but right. there's there's a representation question and issue on those two. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, to be clear, I do 100 percent co-sign the Mike Coulter for James Bond idea, <laughs> but <laughs> to keep it focused here, um, you know, I, I think that the commercials are interesting face because you know they sort of more you, there, there's a very explicit sort of um, like economic focus, obviously, by, by what it is that they are in a way that, that does overlap with what we're seeing on TV, especially in earlier years, because so much of programming decisions, especially on broadcast networks, um, were guided by who advertisers wanted to target, right? And so I, I think that there's been some really interesting writing about, about ads that really heavily focus um, or, or that really heavily target black audiences, black demographics, and the ways that some of them include, especially those McDonald's ads, the like really soulful, I'm loving it ads of like, you know, like what, 15 years ago or mm-hmm. so. Um, those, those, did dovetail with a time when we saw more black shows on TV. Um, but it's, it's interesting that there have been times where there are still lots of commercials targeting black demographics on TV, and there's not that same wealth of shows sort of, you know, telling black stories, right? Like it, the, with the message sort of being, we want your money, certainly, but we're not necessarily going to put your experiences on screen uh, in a way that's just about the story and not just about sort of get, sending you a product that you should be buying. Hmm. Yeah. 
Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Hannah Georges of The Atlantic uh, about black television, how it has evolved, how it is still evolving. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media. 313-577-1019 is the number here. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter and put comments there, and we'll try to include you in the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDT, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined. My guest is Hannah Georges. She's a staff writer at The Atlantic, where she covers culture. She has a piece in The Atlantic's Inheritance Project titled, Not Enough Has Changed Since Sanford and Son. We are talking about black television and the way it has changed over many decades. Uh, We want to hear from you as well. What do you think of shows that try to depict the African-American experience on television. How do you think those shows have changed over time? Uh, are you comfortable with the, where we are right now with black television? Far more people of color being able to shape those shows and write those shows. Uh, but is it enough? Have we gone far enough uh, in including more people uh, of color in that process? As always, we want to hear from you. 313-577-1019 is the f- Number here on the phones, that's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Before we get back to listeners, Hannah, I want to talk about streaming and streaming services and the difference that they seem to have made in terms of getting black writers and actors opportunities that they didn't have before. Why is that working Uh, that way? And does it seem like a sign of the future in terms of things to come? Yeah, I think it's it's certainly not a perfect solution. There there are ways that streaming platforms are themselves also subject to considerations around numbers, around viewership. It's sort of not um, a utopia just because it's not the traditional advertising model. But I think a lot about something that Darnell Hunt, who's a professor and a dean at UCLA, um, and he, he He's a lead author on their their annual Hollywood diversity report. Um, but when I was speaking with him, he said essentially that you know when he buys a Hulu subscription or Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever streaming platform it is, you get everything in their catalog. And so there is an incentive for those platforms to produce you know an array of shows, films, etc. That are, that are appealing to lots of different audiences. And so the question isn't necessarily how do you get tons of people to tune into one sitcom, but rather how do you produce enough that there's so much that, you know, a, a, a sort of critical mass of people has at least one favorite show on your platform. And that that's just different and staggered enough from the sort of, you know, mass appeal mandate of, of broadcast, especially in its earlier years, that we have seen little pockets of creativity that, that, that are different than what would have been possible 20 years ago, mm-hmm. what would have been possible 15 years ago, 10 years ago, even because of streaming. Yeah. yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number. Let's go to Harry in Sterling Heights. Harry, welcome to the show. Hey, uh, great uh, topic. Uh, one of my favorite shows of all times was In Living Color. I'm just wondering how your <laughs> yeah. guest uh, rates that and 
that was pretty much all black cast, a few white people, but yeah. it was all black writers. Yes. And I don't think yes. you could put that on the air nowadays. If they kind of went over the top, but it was very entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great. That's a great point, yeah. Harry. I wonder how that would be received uh, in, in, on network television these days. But but talk about Hannah the 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 importance of that show. And again, it's kind of a milestone, and it I, I think yeah. it opens the doors for a lot of things that we see after it. Yes, yes. Absolutely. I mean, it, it does in, in ways that are um, sort of uh, symbolic or ways that are kind of broader and cultural and in terms of like shaping the landscape. And it also does in quite literal ways, right? Like there are people who wrote on that show who went on to write for some of the biggest sitcoms, the 90s, who, who are still working today. And so there's there's a real interesting pipeline um, of folks who came through that show. And that's, that's one thing that kept showing up in my reporting is that there were these landmark shows that were, you know, had a huge impact, not just on viewers and had a huge impact, not just on what people thought was possible in the television space, but that also in who they staffed and who they gave the room to have, you know, to grow creatively went on to influence other shows moving forward. Um, yeah, I would, I, I mean, I would love to write a story that's just about in living color. There's so much there. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's such, it's such a rich text. And I think, um, I, uh, Part of the reason that I didn't really, really get into it in this is that I know I would have wanted to spend like seven <laughs> paragraphs on it, and I decided to perhaps spare my editor that. <laughs> well, and, <But>. and <laughs> there's something about the risk that they're taking with the content there that I think yeah. you can find uh, traces of in in content today. I mean, when I think of shows like Insecure or Atlanta, which are two, as I said in the open, two of my favorites, they're, they're, these are shows that do take a lot of risk with – Right. content and and approach and i think it's it, it really is in living color that that kicks that door open for for absolutely. for black television in particular yeah yeah absolutely i mean and there's a there's a sort of absurdist bent to some elements of atlanta and, and even insecure right mm-hmm. insecure had that show within the show they think is called do north mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um but the, the, there are things that you can you can almost trace that sort of creative limit lineage back to in living color even if it's not obviously a direct line that there's something in there about what is possible and what humor can be and what humor has to do what it doesn't have to do um that is really that feels really rooted in that and and some of the stuff that we saw beginning with um in living color which is from keenan ivory waynes and and damon waynes yeah okay hannah georges staff writer at the atlantic it was really great to have you here uh, for this conversation, uh, quickly, uh, I've got about a minute left. I want to I want to talk about what the future holds in in terms of what you see. Are we going to see uh, the 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 doors that are open for black writers and producers maintained uh, over time, or is there a risk that we could uh, step back, have sort of uh, uh, drawbacks that that we we might not have anticipated? Yeah, you know, I think that there's always that risk. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I am I am cautiously optimistic um, as a reporter, as a critic, um, but also as, also as a viewer. Um, I think one of the things that's really interesting about this moment is people are people within the industry, people who have who are getting um, opportunities to do big things themselves. They're often reaching out to others and kind of bringing them in. I think that some of the most important work that like Issa Rae, Lena Waithe that are doing isn't just about the shows that they put on, which are, you know, which are great and which a lot of people like, but about bringing in, you know, less seasoned creators to give them opportunities to try things themselves. Um, and that sort of brings us um, 
a, a broadening of, of the landscape in a way that feels like it could be more sustainable than relying on maybe like three, four or five individual people to give us like the bulk of black TV at all mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. Okay. Again, thanks so much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Yeah, thanks again for having me. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when I'm going to talk with the new president of Sojourners, Reverend Adam Taylor, who has a new book titled A More Perfect Union, A New Vision for Building the Beloved Community. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.